Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. One quick announcement. I'm doing a series of reaction videos where I read headlines in the news and casually react to them. And those will be uploaded every other Sunday. So you can check that out, my YouTube channel. My guest today is Jesse Morton. Jesse has an incredibly interesting life story. He was born in America, converted to Islam as a young adult, became radicalized, and devoted his life to doing everything he could to help Al-Qaeda from America, including creating the very first English-language jihadist propaganda magazine, which later famous magazines like Inspire and Dabiq would be modeled after. So after a long journey away from Islamism, he now runs an organization called Parallel Networks, which works on de-radicalizing people who are involved in extremist political and religious movements of all kinds. I enjoyed this one a lot, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, Jesse Morton. Jesse Morton, thanks so much for coming on my show. I appreciate you having me. Nice to be here, Coleman. So I met you a few weeks ago at an event in New York and talked to you for a while and realized I had to get you on my podcast because you're too interesting a person to not talk to and to, to not expose my listeners to. And I hope they'll see why. In order to talk about the work you do right now fighting violent extremism, which is really interesting, I think we, we first have to go into something of a deep delve of your life story. So I guess let's start with just a, a brief summary of where you grew up and who you were as a kid. Very good. Well, my name is Jesse Morton, but for a very long time, I went by the uh, Islamic Kunya or name adopted when one converts uh, to Islam as Yunus Abdul Muhammad. So that's what I'm infamously known as. Uh, but I grew up in uh, rural Pennsylvania. I was the son of an affluent uh, New Jersey city boy, basically whose father was set to be the uh, youngest Supreme Court justice in the state of New Jersey. By all accounts, I should have been an all-American boy. My descendants go back to the Mayflower, sons and daughters of the American Revolution. I'm a direct descendant of John Adams, an ancestor signed the Declaration of Independence. During my seniors, senior year of my father's uh, high school experience, his father passed away out of nowhere. And my father had sort of this existential crisis moved to rural Pennsylvania, where he would start pre-law school in a town called Seelands Grove, where there's this liberal arts pre-law oriented university a lot of kids from New Jersey go to, um, and it's called Susquehanna University. My father became very much intrigued by the uh, beatnik culture, counterculture, and met a local rural woman who was from a very working class family and decided when he impregnated her that he was not going to pursue uh, law and was going to become a construction worker. We grew up on a commune uh, in the middle of nowhere uh, in rural Pennsylvania, where uh, my father supported us by growing marijuana in a woodshed, and uh, we ate uh, vegetables, and everything should have been a very hippie-like lifestyle. Unfortunately, idealisms shatter oftentimes in life. 
And by the age of three, my father was cheating on my mother. He was hardly ever home. And my mother, my brother, my younger sister, and my younger brother and I were living in this rural area where nobody could see anything that was going on. And her mental health started to deteriorate as a result of the stress in her relationship. She started to beat her kids prolifically. And I became, as the oldest, the person who was the brunt and bore the brunt of the majority of the abuse. And I say that not to say that most people go on to become what I became as a result of child abuse, but only that a lot of the work that I do now is looking at the connection between adverse childhood experiences and eventual uh, radicalization into violent extremism or support for violent causes. Anyway, long story short, the abuse continued. I started to talk to members of my family. No one did anything. I was told to be patient. My father didn't care. Guidance counselors at school uh, didn't do anything. And at 15 years old, I ran away. And uh, upon running away, I took to the streets of New York City, went back toward tracing my father's roots, where I learned how to live as a street kid, um, eventually running into the Grateful Dead and emulating my father's idealistic ambitions on more far leftist causes at first by traveling as a deadhead around the country for several years of my life. So that's basically the early trajectory there. All right. So fast forward to the early 90s, I guess. Yeah. Um, this is when you uh, get into trouble with the law and eventually encounter Islamism. Mm-hmm. Talk yeah, about so that. Towards the an- end of the, the 1990s. So in 1998, when I was 19, going on 20 years old, I was incarcerated for the first time for a minor offense in State College, Pennsylvania traveling around with the hippies and was arrested for something minor. But the first day that I was in jail, the guard came and said, would you like to go get a book from the library? And I couldn't find any books. There was nothing quality on the shelf, but I did find the autobiography of Malcolm X. And it was very appealing to me. I like to say now that I kind of climbed into Islam through Malcolm X, not Muhammad. Um, And so my idea of having all of this trauma, having suffered abuse, having converted to a street peddler, being a drug dealer, And now finding myself incarcerated and emulating, sort of living the tale of Malcolm in the cell. It's very powerful. Of course, everyone knows. But then when he got to the chapter where he talked about white people with blue eyes circumambulating the Kaaba in Saudi Arabia, I realized that this ideology he had adopted was not just confined to black nationalism, that in fact, Malcolm had done what most people cannot do, and that is be willing to accept the truth when it comes to their face or whatnot. So I started to really explore religion upon my release. And for about two years, I traveled around. I couldn't change behaviors. I was getting more and more into drug use. But on the side, I was reading more and more about spirituality and religion. I never did not believe in God, uh, but I did not believe that I would ever adopt an organized religion. And in the course of that, I find myself in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, hustling on the street with a fundamentalist Muslim that had practiced, let's say, Prislam. Yes, it converted in prison became serious, uh, follower of Saudi Arabian Salafism, comes home, environment, context, all of those things that influence and impact ends up selling drugs downtown with me in Center City. We go to cop drugs for a consumer in North Philly, and we're told to lay down, uh, coming out of the uh, low-income housing uh, projects. Uh, We run, hide behind some drywall. He says, say these words after me and everything will be okay. And he gives me the declaration of faith in Arabic to Islam. I utter them, don't know what I'm saying, but I do know we got away. And so when the morning sun comes up, we jump in a taxi, go to his wife's house, who is a good practicing Muslim. Everything is safe and secure. I'm coming off of a drug run. 
And I wake up in the morning and I find the Quran open on a bookshelf. And it, first verse that I pick up and open to says, this is a book where those, there's no doubt, a guidance for people of consciousness. Realized right there, I wanted to become a Muslim, converted at the mosque that day when he woke up, but then had to figure out how to provide for myself because I was essentially broke from the bad experience the night before. Ended up getting on a Greyhound bus going to Richmond, Virginia, where I was going to rip off college kids selling fake narcotics to recover uh, from the losses I had experienced the, uh, in the days before. And unfortunately, sold to an undercover cop and got arrested. And the first thing that happened when they put me on an open man cell block in Richmond City Jail was that a Moroccan veteran of the Afghan Soviet Jihad, who I identified as a Muslim from his Kufi, when I said, Salam Alaikum, I just became a Muslim, he took me under his wing. That's where he walked me through the basic tenets of Islam. And from there started to, I guess you could say, radicalize and recruit me. Although I have to say, I was quite open to the prospects, having been looking for that connection from the time that I read the autobiography of Malcolm X until that point. All right. So, so let's just keep going. There, there's a lot to talk about at each of these stages, but mm-hmm. let's just get through the whole story first. So this point, this is what, 2000? This is approaching, yeah, Richmond City Jail. I get out actually um, four months before 9-11 happens. Okay. So then 9-11 happens and... So during the course of my incarceration in Richmond City Jail, the individual taught me a lot of balanced, peaceful things from Islam. But at one point, it sort of started to transition. So the Taliban was in control in Afghanistan. And he tells me to go make a ghusl, which is to wash every inch of your body. And I'm going to come out and give you your real declaration of faith uh, because now you know how to pray in Arabic. And when I do that, he gives me a new name, Yunus, who's Jonah, swallowed by the belly of the beast or swallowed by the whale and spit back out and calls his people of Nanewa in the Bible and in the Quran to monotheism. And he's one of the most successful messengers. So he gives me a command that I have to emulate that and go call Americans to Islam. And then he tells me, my name is Abdullah, slave of God. I will only ever be a slave of God and Muhammad. This is the person I need to emulate. And toward the end, an African-American woke up one morning when we called the call to prayer in the cell block and he stood in front of the prayer and the Moroccan tried to move him out of the way, but he didn't move. And when he didn't move, the Moroccan stood up, cut the prayer and started to fight him. Now, this is my first contact with the idea that violence has any place in religion. And um, I asked him afterwards why. And he, cu- he quoted me a hadith from the Prophet Muhammad. The Prophet is reported to have said that if someone walks in front of your prayer and does not it, move them gently with your right hand to get them away. But if they do not move, then stand up and fight them for verily they are a shaitan. And when I ask him why he fights, he gives me the David and Goliath narrative. And he tells me that the Taliban have established Sharia controlled territory in Afghanistan, and that the West will never take it and that the rest of my life will be spent in a never ending perpetual war between the Kufar, the non-believers and the Muslims. And he quotes prophetic prophecy that says the black flag of jihad will be raised in Khorasan, which the jihadists interpret as Afghanistan, and they will not be stopped until they reach Jerusalem. Now that taps into my anti-Israeli sentiment because I was far leftist anarchist before I converted to Islam. So he politicizes the religion for me. So when 9-11 happens, I see this as a fulfillment of what he told me would happen. And so by the time George Bush says, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists, me, I'm looking at American society. I'm basically an outcast. I'm basically a loser. Yes. And so basically for me, it was like, well, let me explore what the terrorists have to say, because I can't understand what America has to say. And so quickly I started to gravitate to Osama bin Laden. And that's where the process began. So now when you're released from jail or prison this time, you get involved with or, or found a a local 
group called Revolution Islam or Revolution Muslim? Revolution Muslim. Yeah, that was that was later in 2007. But by 2004, with the Iraqi war, I was on 125th Street in Harlem preaching uh, every day for African-Americans not to. Uh, participate in the war on terror because of their history of being brought here on slave ships. Their ancestors were Muslim, blah, 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 you know, and that they want you to fight their wars as working class people. And that led me to connect to an organization that was an offshoot of the most popular radicalizing uh, organization from the United Kingdom, which is called Al-Mahajirun. They had a New York City based offshoot that I joined first and I gravitated towards them and they gave me that community to belong to. And then from there, I was able to access very charismatic preachers of the era and ask them questions and whatnot. But my criticism of this group called Islamic Thinker Society was that as the world was evolving more and more toward interconnectivity, created uh, opportunity on the Internet and what we were calling social media 2.0, they were not utilizing the Internet as, as, as effectively as they could. And so in 2007, a Jamaican cleric by the name of Abdullah Faisal, who had radicalized the 7-7 bombers, got home from prison and was extradited to Jamaica, uh, where he was safe to say whatever he wanted. And I started an organization with an Orthodox Jewish convert who had a very large following on YouTube and Abdullah Faisal, who gave me the charismatic spiritual leadership that I needed. And I sort of command and controlled this organization we called Revolution Muslim, which in many ways was responsible for laying, I think, the seed and the template and the methodology that later, when I was incarcerated, ISIS adopted and some of my followers that had traveled to Syria adopted and then made essentially viral. My organization was connected to 15 different terrorist plots, radicalized countless numbers. And we were really the first to translate the message of Al-Qaeda to the American ambit in the sense that it looked like it was Al-Qaeda on Madison Avenue or Al-Qaeda in Hollywood. We basically had uh, we used the uh, English language glossy jihad magazines that have become so popular since then. That was my conception. In the same way jihadists use Telegram and encrypted apps today, we used PalTalk. That shocked the world when it came out in the Snowden leaks. But it was a very active space for us in the, the non-surface uh, web. Um, and so we basically were innovators. We took American innovation and we synthesized it with this traditionalist jihadist understanding and made it essentially uh, viral. The end came when we threatened the writers of South Park for portraying the Prophet Muhammad in a cartoon in 2010. So by that point, you were living in Saudi Arabia, no? I lived in Saudi Arabia for a time and I was kicked out of the country. So this I, was, you, you had just gotten a master's degree while you're doing all of this at Columbia, right? Yes, indeed. So I was, because my birth name is Jesse Morton, I was always able to operate covertly under the radar. And one thing Islam gave me was stability. So I got an undergraduate from a school down on Barrack Street Metropolitan College uh, I had worked on Wall Street for a time, uh, but then left because of interest uh, and uh, use of usury. Then I was leading an outpatient substance abuse mental health clinic for 10 years, all while operating as one of America's biggest radicalizers and recruiters. Uh, eventually graduated from Columbia from the School of International Public Affairs, SIPA, uh, with a master's degree in Middle East studies. And my idea was to move to the Middle East and begin to be a critical theorist. Right. And criticize American imperialism from the Middle East and be like I always was. I was always the white, uh, blue eyed you know, person that the jihadists could prop up and say, hey, we got one of your own and he has a lot to say about things. So I wanted to continue walking in that path. The uh, U.S. government in conversations with Saudi authorities had me removed. And uh, when I came back while I was in Saudi Arabia, this there, was for, for the South Park. 
threats. This was before the South Park threats. Okay. So while I was in Saudi Arabia, everything started to heat up. Many individuals that were connected to my organization carried out attacks. We had the underwear bomber. Uh, we had uh, Major Nidal Hassan. And now the concern was for the domestic threat, homegrown radicalized extremists, a, a condition and a context that we kind of created. Um, and when I came back, I had a choice to shut up or to keep talking. And I chose to continue um, the exhilaration, the zeal, the, the spiritual meaning that I understood as spiritual meaning was too much to overcome. And I continued to press the uh, issue, if not get more violent and extremist. Uh, and ultimately, South Park declared that they were going to portray the Prophet Muhammad in their 200th episode. And we told them that if they did, they would end up like Theo Van Gogh, who ended up dead on a street in Amsterdam for portraying what Muslims perceive to be an anti-Islamic film with Ayan Hirsi Ali, who uh, is now a, a, a staunch advocate for free speech and goes against uh, fundamentalism. Yeah. So, um, okay. So that brings us to 2010. Mm-hmm. You get kicked out of Saudi Arabia, but then you end up later in Morocco, right? Mm-hmm. So after I threatened the writers at South Park, my co-defendant, the person that actually issued the threat, was picked up by the uh, law enforcement community. Now, I had developed these English language jihadi magazines with Anwar al-Awdaki and Samir Khan, two notorious uh, al-Qaedists who left from America as propagandists, embedded with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and then were killed in a drone strike eventually, shortly after I would be incarcerated. They launched, in reaction to the South Park scandal, a woman in Seattle started a Facebook page called Everybody Draw Muhammad Day. And it caused controversy to the degree that Pakistan and Indonesia threatened to shut down Facebook in their country if they didn't remove it. The jihadists, my allies, my former friends who are now embedded with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula decided that they were going to take the English language template that I created and they were going to turn it into a magazine called Inspire. This magazine was very different in the sense that now they could say whatever they wanted and they included a recipe that's been used innumerable times since then how to make a bomb in mom's kitchen. They threatened to kill uh, the woman who started Everybody Draw Muhammad Day. And I knew that I had engaged in a conspiracy that was essentially a violation of the law. My ex-wife is from Morocco, so we ran to Casablanca. I was amazed that we were able to get on a plane. And while there, uh, I was removed from the network. The Arab Spring breaks out. And suddenly I start to sort of question over time. I lived there for about a year until the Americans picked me up for the South Park offenses. When we try to get healthier, we tend to think of the food we have to hold ourselves back from instead of focusing on giving ourselves more of what our bodies need. Noom uses a psychology-based approach to help us change our mindset for good. Because building better habits means a more sustainable journey to better health. There's no need to try to take on a whole mountain of wellness at once. Just start where you are. With Noom, you'll take a path towards better health one step at a time. Their psychology-based approach helps you change your mindset rather than demanding a whole new lifestyle. Noom teaches you about food and the psychology of eating. It helps you better understand your cravings rather than seeing any food as bad food. Noom takes a more empathetic approach in helping you achieve your health goals. A healthier life doesn't mean sticking to someone else's strict rules. It means having more knowledge to build smarter, more sustainable habits. Noom's cognitive behavioral approach focuses on why instead of what to help you change your relationship with food. Everyone's journey looks different. Noom customizes a program for you based on your own personal goals. 
80% of Noom users finish the program and over 60% have stuck with their goals for at least a year. With Noom, taking care of your health is empowering instead of stress-inducing. No need to fear ruining your whole program with one off day. Noom will help you get back on track. All you need is 10 minutes a day. Noom fits into your life on your terms. Start building better habits for healthier, long-term results. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash Coleman. Once again, you can sign up for the trial at noom.com slash Coleman. Yeah, so talk a little bit about why you began to question during the Arab Spring and, and as a result of your interaction with people in Morocco. Well, I think it's, 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 it's complex, but really when you are a uh, convert to Islam, you meet a lot of Muslims in America and you are taught by the jihadists and you get scripture to back those claims that they're essentially hypocritical, that they don't want to practice their religion as it was prescribed for them. So you have this view of uh, Arabs, uh, Southeast Asians, as if they're ignorant and don't understand the religion that they've been blessed with. But I think that when you get to interact with people that you label, I think it's really key to diversifying your views and be able to establish individuation in thinking. And so one thing about extremism and radicalization is it becomes you lose yourself to the movement. Everything the movement tells you to do, you believe in. And so here I'm running away and I can no longer communicate with people that are embedding me in this echo chamber every day. So this is one factor. The second factor is essentially that I am teaching Arab millennial youth for GED, uh, I mean, for GMAT, for GRE, you know, to study abroad, to go to their master's degree in order to survive. And the Arab Spring breaks out and we have these fascinating conversations in the middle of Morocco, which is a very liberal society, all about eating. They really are showing me a lot of love. And what I see is the ambition for populist change and democracy and taking things that I have taken for granted for my whole life. They, at the same time, are sort of motivating me to go back to my roots, which is believing in individual freedom. I'm thinking, wow, I think I'm upon totalitarianism. Uh, but at the same time, they're pushing back against me because shortly after I start teaching them, my case becomes known amongst them. So they start to talk to me about why I believe in what I believe in. And a select group of my students were probably the first people to ever push back against my ideas in a face-to-face manner offline. When then I guess there's just the general macro context of the Arab Spring, which is motivating people all over the world, believing that there would be a democratic future for people that had been left behind by the wave of democratization in the 90s and in the early 2000s before the war on terror began. And now we're in some ways labeled as these dangerous fundamentalists. But what I saw is something different. I saw creativity. I saw some level of consciousness that was intriguing. And I really felt like it might be that I was upon a wrong path. After that, the propaganda started to change its taste with me. So Osama bin Laden was trying to rebrand al-Qaeda. He issued this statement about global warming, blaming the United States for all of global warming in the world, and not just a conspiratorial manner, but just a completely, it was buffoonish. It really didn't make any sense. It had no coherent logic. And so for me, it's like this guy's supposed to be the leader of this Islamic state he's advocating for. And now I'm seeing the, as he's trying to change his message into something other than his realm of expertise, he looks like he might be a very, very serious imbecile. So this shocks me, but it was too late. I was picked up on the streets of Casablanca after the Americans unsealed an indictment two weeks after they killed Osama bin Laden. And I spent five months in a Moroccan jail where I met a former Salafi jihadist preacher that I had followed and translated his work. He had changed his views. The Americans came to pick me up, took me back to America. 
And rather than like stay staunch in my beliefs, I still continue to look for opportunities to transform and change my views. And, and you talk about a moment, I think it was on the plane back to America, where they asked to identify you as either Jesse Morton or Yunus Abdullah Muhammad. Mm-hmm. So this is something that is intriguing for me as a milestone marker because I spent my whole life hating Jesse Morton. And when the uh, veteran of the Afghan Soviet Jihad gave me my new name, my Islamic kunya, I was honored to hold on to it. It became my identity, became an alter ego that became me. And to re-identify with Jesse Morton when was asked. So they picked me up in a private airport. Uh, they, well, they shut down the international airport of Rabat to transport me back. The Americans come in, they put me in a, uh, an office. They dress me like I'm going to Guantanamo, chain me up, get me on the plane. The first thing they do is put the Quran in front of my face. And so, you know, I had just spent five months in Moroccan prison where, uh, let's just say human rights are not respected. And independent press and access to journalism in the Middle East in general is, is, is not exactly readily available. And so in some senses inside of me, I was already eager to get home, even if it was going to be a prison cell, just to have access to information to consume, you know, that was independent of the state. But when he asked, I think it shocked everybody on the plane. I said, I want to identify as Jesse Morton. And that began a process of me basically convicting myself while flying home and just telling the absolute truth of everything I had ever done and getting it off my chest. And through all these years, how mixed were your two lives? You know, uh, at Columbia, when you were teaching American students and interacting and presumably making some relationships and friends, did they know about your alter ego? Did you mix those two lives or did you just keep them separate? They could tell that I was a fundamentalist. And in fact, the NYPD had a informant uh, who uh, was active at Columbia University while I was there, who was one of my uh, college classmates. Um, And so word had gotten out in Colombia. Very few people said anything to me to my face, but I could tell that it was a rumor that was spreading around. Um, I was working full time and going to school. So my situation was a little bit different. So I was there just to get the paper, right? Just to get the degree. Um, But they did know. But when I would go to work, uh, nobody knew. When I would, uh, you know, engage with friends that were outside of the realm of my Islamist circles, nobody would really know. But it was that kind of hypocrisy of trying to, hide who I was, that when I would have to live as Jesse Morton, it just cemented self-hatred, to be quite honest. So living those dual lives was uh, traumatizing and burdensome in and of itself. So let's talk about the causes of joining extremist movements, What the appeal of these movements. I think a lot of people don't see the appeal at all and are therefore confused by why anyone would seemingly derail their whole lives when they have a lot to lose, frankly, you know, if you're, if you're born into semi-privileged circumstances, you have a lot to lose by dedicating your life to jihadism. But I think there's a, a certain, either just an innate personality type or a personality type that comes about as a consequence of life experiences that is so hungry for meaning and for purpose that any ideology that comes to such a person person and says, I understand exactly why you feel alienation in life. I know that you feel empty inside and I know exactly why. And I have the answer. Mm-hmm. And there are different, obviously jihadism is one version of this. Any cult is a, can be a version of this. Religions in general can be a version of this. Political ideologies can be a version of this. 
the alt-right, you know, Antifa, QAnon, anything that comes in and just seeks to explain fully your life dissatisfaction and give you a, a scripted answer that comes with community and the, the chance to learn and, and rise in status in a particular community by using your mind and your intellect. I mean, that seems to me that that's the personality type that is, is attracted to, to these kind of things. And it, it strikes me too, that you, you had, you, you struggled with drug addiction at, at points because it seems, I'm curious if you agree that there's a harmony between the, the kind of mind that is vulnerable to drug addictions and, and the kind of person that may also want to join an extremist group, right? So can you talk a little bit about what you understand to be the psychology of extremism? So one thing that we know, having studied uh, terrorism prolifically now for 20 years since the onset of the war on terror, is that there's no profile and that everybody's pathway to radicalization is individualized, but that there are patterns mm. that we can identify. I do think that there's a strong uh, similarity between the life of an addict and what makes a person susceptible to addiction and that which is violent extremism or belonging to a movement uh, that offers revolutionary change of the status quo. The reason that I say that is what we're learning about addiction now in the realm of uh, you know, therapy and substance abuse intervention and, and practice is that there's a very strong correlation between a high uh, level of adverse childhood experience and susceptibility to addiction. So for most people, and some of the pioneers in this field are people like Gabor Mate, a specialist in trauma, and looking at those correlations, essentially what we find is that what addicts get out of the drug is not as important as what they get out of the culture. So what they get is they get community and they sort of have their own culture with regard to their own ideology. It's a lifestyle and it's a lifestyle that allows them to escape reality because other than that, there was really nothing to live for. So even though this uh, situation is not exactly the same, I do think that there are strands of similarity. And I do like to think that the more and more evidence that we collect, we'll find out more, more about how violent extremist ideologies function as an addiction. Hasn't been explored prolifically in the empirical literature, but there are some studies that suggest that's the case. Um, research on former far-right-wing extremists shows that their level of adverse childhood experiences are at four or more, are 65%, whereas the base population of the United States is 13%. That's even higher than what you would, might call and classify as juvenile delinquents. Um, but even the process of entering into a counterculture and the exhilaration that can be provided by the drug, if you think of the ideology that's associated with jihadism as a drug. So for me, I was an addict trying to cope and finding religion as a way to get out of my addiction. But what I realized, because for 14 years, Islam kept me completely sober and I left all of jihadism behind. And as soon as I started to transform and change. I joined the program on extremism at George Washington University as a research fellow when I was uh, when when I went public as America's first former jihadist. And telling that story, re-traumatizing my my own narrative, put me in a state where, after 15 years, out of nowhere, I relapsed on cocaine, having never touched the substance. And my takeaway from that, as a personal experience, was that. Wow, the ideology, I no longer adhered to it. But the minute that you removed it, it was like removing the drug that substituted for, for the cocaine. 
And all of a sudden, as relapse doesn't happen overnight, all of the indicators were there in retrospect that I was going to relapse, but I had forgot I was an addict. And so rather than learn how to cope and deal with the underlying traumas that made me an addict and then probably made me susceptible to radicalization, I relapsed. And as they say in recovery, relapse can be a part of recovery. And it made me dig deeper. So one of the things my organization is exploring is this potential similarity between addiction and what we do to intervene with addiction effectively. You think about NA and A, it's social support. Yes, it's a substitute for the counterculture and the social support and the friends and the networks that individuals belong to in addiction. And that's basically what happens when a young kid explores this realm of jihadism or Antifa, or here's a person who's frustrated, feels like they're not being recognized, almost everyone. And there might not be utilitarian, right? In the sense that they might not be driven by utilitarian uh, outlooks. Maybe for them, there is this need for sacredness. Maybe there's this need for meaning and significance. And that's what really pushes an individual into the interest. But it's not just that and nor an ideology. It's the culture and the embeddedness, the community. And that's where you get the meaning and the significance. Because now if you're a young kid in Portland and you're really unemployed, not doing well in life, and you go to your first protest, right? This is exhilarating. There's a cause here. You might not even understand the cause, but gradually you're embedded in a new network. You're given a new community. Now you have something to live for and something to believe in even though you probably don't really believe in it and would have latched on to anything, right? It's just that it's there and it's providing something for you. And so the other thing about trauma and the other thing about adverse experiences is that brains that operate from the amygdala, right? Where the emotional regulation occurs, where we say fight, flight, freeze, they're predisposed to accept the black and a white worldview because it gives comfort and stability in that space of stimulus and response. Whereas people that are stable and emotionally well-regulated, they will process emotions and move them to the prefrontal cortex where conscious, rational decisions are made. Traumatized people stay in that space. And if something brings them comfort, even if it's extremist or radical, it puts them in what they experience as a space of calm. And then they transition when they solidify through their engagement in the network, they transition into the conscious, rational part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and they cement those views. And so they hold them as completely rational, even though the cognitive biases that are making them believe in them are actually faulty, but they lose that ability to live outside the black and the white, outside the us versus them. And it's comforting. So in in your case, on the one hand, it seems like anyone who has this, for whatever reason, has this psychology that makes them susceptible to extremist recruitment it seems like any group can be sort of as good, good as any other, but it also seems like the specifics matter in a, in a person's life and makes you more likely more vulnerable to recruitment by certain groups than others. So for instance, in your case, you say you were reading Noam Chomsky as I assume a, a teenager and had a, you know, maybe partly from your father kind of vaguely, anti-US background. And so do you think you could have been recruited with with some different details in your life story to say like an alt-right style movement or a neo-Nazi movement? Or would would that have been too dissonant with what you believed? Well, for me, it's true because the circumstances that I lived under was my father was an affluent, young, uh, privileged kid turned rural American. So everybody in my community that would have been 
more open to alt-right ideas who I was exposed to, and that was most of the community I grew up in and went to school with, was basically confused by the outsider that was my father. You know, long hair, ponytailed, marijuana smoking construction worker that seemed like he didn't come from around here. That being the case, I kind of rejected that. And then the other haphazard circumstance was they would bust me because I had a pretty high IQ. They would bust me to the more elite, you know, cross the bridge, so to say, uh, sector. So I had this weird life where my father was kind of this counterculturalist. The people that were working class, rural, white, poor were engaged in my life, but were scared of us because we were different. But then when they would ship me to the privileged schools, I would see the classism. Right. So, yes, that's a large degree. All of those specifics. Right. Definitely contributed to me while in high school and no one being able to recognize the abuse running to the library and picking up Noam Chomsky you know, Norm Finkelstein and others, I mean, and anarchism, communism, because it's another form of counterculturalism. You know, that was in my house, right? But the hypocrisy of that made me not want to be my father, so to say, but it was this idea of this community, this world, this reality, this culture that we call American culture, it doesn't have the depth that I need to heal me. So I was searching. For something. And if someone would have came along and just given me a hug and like said, like, something's wrong with you, we need to talk to you, I probably would have been okay. It just unfortunately for me, it, it, it didn't happen. No one noticed. Yeah. So you, you talk about in one article, you use the phrase cognitive opening, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. Is it, even if all the ingredients are there in a particular person, there still has to be a sort of a moment when your, your mind is open enough to change its belief system radically. That's like, I think in many ways I relate to having the personality factors that would potentially with a, maybe with a worse childhood would make me a candidate for any kind of extremist group. The, the sort of, I understand the appeal, but I can't imagine being cognitively open enough to change everything, I believe. I mean, truly, I I consider myself a fairly open-minded person, but the truth is in order to get through the day and have, have a life that is at all coherent, you can't reconsider all of your beliefs when someone starts preaching to you on the street, right? And, and that's not even really how radicalization happens. It's really just bit by bit. But you do, you talk about this idea of, of, of a cognitive opening. So am I understanding that term right? Can you explain that a little bit? Well, a cognitive opening could have to do with an experience that creates that kind of susceptibility to adopt a complete comprehensive alternative worldview. Could have to do with a lot of times what we see is it's, you know, 16 to 21 while the brain, brain is still in its early stages of of, of going into adulthood and people are trying to answer that question, who am I and what do I want to become? The people that are susceptible to this are doing two things. Number one, they're not succeeding. Number two, they feel like they should be succeeding because they feel like they have something to offer. Number three, something happens that creates that cognitive opening that's outside of themselves and creates some sort of existential crisis where suddenly the haphazard circumstances of coming into a contact with an ideology can give them the answers that they're looking for. So those that are drifting, those that don't have an ability to regulate their behavior and their emotions for whatever reason, 
in whatever state they might find themselves in. And so what we say with regard to the term of cognitive opening is that they are in a cognitive state drifting around. Doesn't probably many people are, but they don't bump into that. You know, some would join a cult. Uh, others would uh, find a, a route to a healthy pro-social community or organization that was doing good work in the community and belong there. I had the opportunity to do the same thing in Harlem. I just left it pass me by. And But uh, for those unfortunate and due to randomness of the universe that run into these ideologies, and they are all, they all function the same way. You know, there's no, there's, there's no real need to distinguish between what they do for people there's a need to distinguish between who might be susceptible to them at a greater risk than other categories or other demographics, but they all function the same way. They give you, oh, I found the answers I'm looking for. And that's why you see so many more people radicalized between the ages of 16, and it's getting lower and lower as time goes on, but 16 to 22 is really that catch base in time. And that's a time when everybody's going through a cognitive opening of sorts. But typically we have that matched with a frustration about way things are moving. How much of a game changer do you think it is that algorithms on YouTube and Mm. on other social media are always pushing you in the direction of the more, more extreme version of whatever you're consuming? Like it's a, you know, on on the one hand you could say, well, the, the medium changes, but in the end, it's just radicalization has, has always operated that way. And it's actually, or, or you could say, no, you know, the fact that this technology changes has really made a difference. So, so what's your view of that? Well, I think that the uh, world of social media has certainly changed the, uh, uh, the way that people consume information. To make it simplistic, I think we just need to look at Facebook, for example, the largest platform that we have been confronted with over, you know, the last decade and a half. It's grown to the point where almost everybody in the world has at least used it. Facebook published an internal report from 2016 that documented that 64% of the people that joined an extremist group on their platform did so because their AI recommended it to them. And so what they said was, oh, well, we're creating echo chambers. And so they tried to do the right thing, so to say, and they tried to adjust the algorithm so that it would cross pollinate between hyperpolarized echoes, getting you out of that sort of echo chamber. The problem was that the users started to spend less time on the platform because of negativity bias, because of whatever reason. And so in the end, Facebook readjusted its AI algorithm so that it returned back to the original state right? Because they, number one, are profit driven, right? And so this is something where when we think about, and that was back 2016, since that time, what they've done is they've lifted this away from the public realm of knowledge. And they've been sort of, as we've gone more and more cancel culture, especially with regard to the way that ICC's social media created more public pressure to take down content, and to do more with the AI to remove violent or radical uh, uh, material. But since that time, we've gotten to a level where the algorithms stay the same, but you create these fraudulent sort of subsidiary efforts to like, let's assume that people are radicalizing on Facebook and keyword searching for the Proud Boys, which there's no empirical evidence to suggest that's the case. And it doesn't actually happen that way. And then they they link you to a commercial, an advertisement. People are asked to click on the ad. And you look at the data and the success rates. It does absolutely nothing but then they can turn your face in the other direction and try to make it look like they're doing something, right? And at this point, what we have is we have the complication of that, especially because if you look at the rates of 
content that is now being removed over a long term, especially post Capitol riots. Now, the number of Facebook hate posts on all of the major platforms that are being removed each month have gone up exponentially. So the content is reducing. But what we're not thinking about now on the other end of things, because this is public pressure, they're not going to use the platform if indeed Facebook doesn't adjust to this sort of mob mentality, cancel culture mentality. But what we're doing is we're pushing people psychologically into echo chambers where we might reduce the number of people that have access to radical messages. But those that are already radicalized are coming to the conclusion that they're being censored and then they're actually engaging only with each other. And that will solidify radicalization, the us versus them perspective, the dehumanization of the other. They will feel like they are victims and a higher propensity of those will go on to become terrorists or violent extremists. And we experienced this under ISIS, even though we didn't realize it. Now, it's a much broader conversation about what constitutes violent extremist speech versus hate speech. But essentially what you have in the social media companies is they are beholden to profit. And if the public says we're not going to use your platform and we might get a mass migration, or if they're worried about, you know, Section 230 being repealed so that they have to do more and they're regulated by the government, then they have to move in a direction that facilitates their profit. But their movements are always actually conducive to radicalization rather than actually able to address the concerns that underlie it. So, yeah, let's talk about censorship a little bit, because censorship is one of the main tools that policymakers and and social media platforms have in order to fight extremism you know when we when the public complains that such and such a terrorist was radicalized through YouTube the natural response by YouTube is to ban them you know to to ban Alex Jones say and there are i guess there are two separate criticisms of this move one is that it is always open to the charge of hypocrisy. Twitter banning Trump, but allowing the spokesperson of the Taliban to still have an account. There's just a million. It's actually, it would be almost impossible in practice, even if you had a hypocrisy czar, for them to be accurate enough to really satisfy people. So it's sort of a perpetual problem. But then there's this separate criticism that it, it actually doesn't work in the final analysis. But you highlight a trade-off here that is really interesting. It's a trade-off between how many people are exposed to some propaganda and the level of marginalization faced by people already exposed. Mm-hmm. And that's only in the short term. So we don't know what will be the case in the long term. So in the short term, it appears deplatforming reduces quantitatively the number of people that have access to a radical message. But qualitatively, it might enhance the number of people that are already radicalized that go on to become violent. But in the recent period, post-capital riots, post-banning of Trump, we see massive support. And the mainstream narrative, particularly amongst conservatives, is that big tech is censoring conservatives. And they're not wrong. There is a bias that is definitely there. That can be shown in the data. And it is a fact. The situation now becomes people don't. So the scholarly work on this concentrates on one platform, most of it. But anything that concentrates on the Internet and social media as an ecosystem shows that extremists just go somewhere else. And so you can ban QAnon and they'll go establish themselves on Telegram, but then they'll craftily adopt new hashtags to go back on Facebook anyway. 
And they have a firm, committed conspiracy theory and victim narrative that they can espouse over there. This is what we used to do. When they first started to take us down, we kept our content on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter relatively benign, but it always linked to our website where you could get the real stuff. So now the extremists, they migrate to Telegram, they migrate to Signal, they migrate to these other platforms. And Facebook and other companies say, we reduced activity on our platform by 2 million violent extremist post last month as if it's an applause but in actuality they just kicked it somewhere else right and then like something like parlor which came about in the aftermath of the banning of donald trump and in the run-up to the january 6 uh riots starts to get traction and has 13 million some say as many as 32 million people that poses that sort of matthew effect preferential attachment beginning where you could have a competitor but really what they're forcing is a hyperpolarization of the social media landscape in the long run. So we might be, if radicalization does not occur online, and it doesn't, there's no evidence that it does. They repeat, we, we're, we're working on a, a scholarly report with Minds.com to adopt a, a mechanism and a platform and an approach to doing this that does not ban hate speech simply because it makes the problem worse and that thinks creatively about how to do this properly. And it is full of conundrums, but they know everything they do kicks it to other spaces. And it doesn't prevent them from coming back on their platform because you can easily game an algorithm. You just have to learn what gets you removed and what doesn't. And until they tweak it, you're good to go. So this is really the problem is that, yes, in the short term, it might appear like deplatforming works. In the long term, you're inducing hyperpolarization to the social media landscape. You're increasing toxic polarization, reciprocal dehumanization, and people feeling like they're victims is definitely a step towards radicalizing to the degree where you say my only recourse is violence. So let's talk about the de-radicalization process and how you're trying to, uh, you're, you're getting into networks of extremists and uh, trying to help foster that, the transition that you made in other people. Sure. So in 2017, um, I started an organization called Parallel Networks because one of the fascinating dives that I did while I was incarcerated uh, was I looked at a lot of the uh, scientific literature on network theory. And I found that intuitively what we did was really consistent with what network theory says about how you, as Malcolm Gladwell put it, make ideas spread like viruses do. And the key characteristics, components of narratives, but not just that, just the structure and the topography of a network has a lot to do with it. And I looked at this nascent field that we have that we call countering violent extremism. It's a very erroneous field. It's nascent to the degree where it's mostly a money-making operation in an industry. And I felt like motivated to try to do something differently and to challenge the status quo. And so starting this organization was based upon a different idea that rather than just build out small, simplistic video messages that counter extremists, but actually, if I were an extremist, they'd actually further radicalize me or do some of the minor things that would be going, going on. We needed to think in terms of networks, right? That if you don't first develop a network that rivals in size and scope, the extremist network that you're trying to combat, and that if you don't build that network on antithetical principles to hate and extremism, then you might be able to influence an individual, but you can't influence the collective. And you're definitely not going to be able to monitor and evaluate out. So what we've built since 2017 is an ecosystemic public health informed trauma conscious approach that basically looks at public health as creating that network through sound science, being able to measure that network, and then being able to measure our engagement with extremist networks, but also look at second and third order impact, which is what people that 
uh, are analyzing the effects of takedown or deplatforming on Facebook can't do because the second order impact is they got to go somewhere. You know, it's a very reductionist way of thinking and it's all politicized and it's all about money. So we came in with a holistic effort to sort of combat and change the way that people dealt with this issue. Since that time, we've built an ecosystem we call Light Upon Light. Light Upon Light is a verse from the Quran, but it's also this idea that no problem has ever been combated at the same order of consciousness that creates it. That what we're learning in the sciences, that what we're learning about trauma treatment in particular for somebody who's been affected by it, is the gateway into a higher order of thinking where we can learn better how to uh, grasp our current era where we're demanding decentralization, but we don't know how to basically cope with the technological changes and other alterations that are going on around us. But that we need to get there, that currently the state of circumstances is driving wedges between us and paving ways only for authoritarianism and extremist circles to continue to prosper. We now run a series of programs, one control, alt, delete, hate, which is our methodology and our counter narrative work, control the space between stimulus and response, alter course, make a commitment to nonviolence, and then impart a better understanding in society that everybody has a role to play in combating hyperpolarization, hate, and extremism. And that feeds into our intervention work, which we call Shift Hate, support and help for individuals and families touched by hate, 24-7 helpline. You can contact us on an array of different platforms. And we've now conducted over 250 informal, like where we, they weren't part of programming or grant funding, 250 interventions with individuals that are from the far left, from the far right, conspiracy theorists, jihadists, et cetera. And we build out this, this sort of thing where rather than just do individual interventions, our organization understands that I can tell you, Coleman, if you're an extremist, that you should change, but your next question is going to be, so now what? So then we have our Society Against Violent Extremism and Hate Network, where you get a new sense of belonging if you're someone who's leaving the alt-right or if you're leaving neo-Nazism. And you're surrounded by interesting people like Daryl Davis, who's an African-American musician who de-radicalizes Klan members, former extremists that used to lead big movements that other extremists are certainly aware of, very interesting activists and artists, you know, former prison offenders. And we all operate as kind of like a community that supports each other. And that feeds back into our prevention programming called Escape Hate. So what we've done is we've innovated in the space of what was really and still remains to be a serious challenge because most people that do what I do actually make the problem worse, but don't think about it, right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to take this experiential understanding and combine it with science and combine it with actually not assuming that what we do is correct just because we consider ourselves doing God's work, but we really do need a science-based, evidence-based approach that can teach us how to intervene with one extremist, but at the same time to create macro, meso, and micro circumstances that can go back to the root causes of it. And unfortunately, there is such political hatred and bias that you kind of have to choose a side. You have to be on the right or you have to be on the left. Everybody wants to know where you believe, like what side. It's like you, you know, like nobody can figure out if you're like liberal or conservative. And that's the way it should be. That's a person who thinks for themselves, but that scares people. Um, and we're quite comfortable because a lot of the stuff that we've done has been recognized. And now we're moving forward and being able to develop this framework that I just described to you and apply it to phenomenon such as foreign terrorist fighter and family member returnees from Syria going back to their respective countries. We're about to launch a program out in Portland where we're going to be the first trying to overcome the polarization, overcome the toxicity, the hate and the extremism that is plaguing that community. We've worked uh, for the first uh, 
government funded uh, program on de-radicalizing extremist defenders. Uh, we incarcerated a lot of people during the war on terror. We never thought that we'd still be waging it uh, when they returned home from prison. And the U.S. government hasn't ever created a program to identify what their needs will be and how to treat them. And so a lot of them have been coming home and we've been working with them successfully to prevent you know, similar things like we've seen happen in the U.K., so from every space that we do it, though, we do it very differently in the sense that we can say that we believe in compassion, dialogue and engagement. But oftentimes when we practice that, we still bring our prejudices and biases that we can't see. You know, it's kind of like from my experience, most people that, you know, speak of privilege and, and bias and that it becomes common on their tongue. Technically, if you really look and analyze it, what they're saying and whether or not they can justify what they're saying. It seems to me that they themselves are suffering from the most prejudice and bias in the conversation. And that's really the problem with extremists, too, is like there's this presumption that the far right is a certain way. There's this presumption that all of these groups are violent extremists. And that's what we did with the combating of jihadism. Like we couldn't differentiate between the Muslim Brotherhood, I don't believe or agree with them. You know, they are fundamentalists. They believe in a Khidafa. They have many of the same beliefs as Al Qaeda and ISIS. But we conflated the two and we made the Muslim community feel like they were being securitized and under threat. And we made the problem worse. And everybody admits that after we did it for over a decade. But now we're doing the very same thing as we turn the focus onto domestic extremism. So long story short, that's the way we do things. And the way the reason that we're doing it is trying to be that call in the wilderness that says, hey, if you get the same results you got out of the last 20 years and now you wage a domestic war on terror, you might blow up the system. Long story short. Yeah. Glenn Greenwald had him on a few months ago and he's talked about how Biden is retooling many of the same domestic security approaches that Bush used for the war on Islamic terror to the war on white supremacist domestic terror. Mm -hmm. And I guess in that vein, I have a question about how, how these threats, verbal threats run up against free speech protections. Because when you were, when your organization posted about the South Park writers saying that, what was the post that they're going, they're going to end up like, they're probably going to end up like uh, Theo Van Gogh. That would not have been illegal, but additional to that, the post included the likely addresses where they might live. So that crosses the threshold of a communication of threat under American law. Now, American law, especially at this point, is very unique with regard to its understanding of the First Amendment and free expression than, you know, most of the other Western democracies at this point as well. But yeah, there's definitely dangers and risks with allowing people to say what they say. But the more and more that people criticize and the more and more that people tried to silence us, the more and more people turned toward the act of violence. Right. And so there really was no effort to combat what we were saying. Right. So nobody ever came along and tried to counter what we were saying. Right. Nobody ever came along and tried to challenge us. Instead, they tried to silence us. And that became the route through which we were able to say, see, they are waging a war against Muslims. See, we are the victims here. See, they will never let you speak the truth. They will always censor you. And so now what you have to do is you have to act upon the message. And so it actually facilitated our grievance. It facilitated our call. It made it actually easier for us to, to, to go about. Maybe we had less followers, but 
slowly but surely more and more people took the ideas that we disseminated and turned them into efforts to, you know, we were connected to 15 different terrorist plots in less than um, three years, unfortunately. I think a lot of people feel that it's useless to have a good faith argument or conversation with an extremist of any kind Mm -hmm. because either they're just not operating rationally at all. They're not open to conversation or their real motivations don't have to do with the beliefs, right? Like they're, um, that's right. They're actually just either mentally ill people that are basically just, you should just interpret what they're saying as sounds or gibberish. That is just really an expression of a mental illness that needs to either be cured with drugs mm-hmm. or, or something else, but certainly not with conversation. Or it's that they, you know, if they're, especially if it's religious or otherworldly, that actually that's not what they're mad about. What they're mad about are more, you know, in the case of, of, of jihadis, you know, Noam Chomsky-like political grievances and all the religious mumbo jumbo is actually, it's actually just a facade. So it's not worth engaging on that level, right? It's not worth arguing about scripture, for instance. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to that general attitude that I think a lot of people have that prevents them from wanting to have conversations with extremists? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, there's a skill and a technique that is part and parcel of being able to learn how to take hold of society approaches towards addressing radicalization. And that is that if a person is cemented in their beliefs and you challenge them, you're only going to further cement them in their beliefs. This is not just true for extremists. It's true for most people that are very committed to something that they believe in. And there's an alternative argument for everything. So when a person is ideologically driven and likes to talk a lot about why they believe what they believe, you know, the person around the table that's queuing on at Thanksgiving, you know, and starts to, and nobody knows how to deal with these theories. That's when you want to get them to reconnect with their self and talk to them about their experiences and try to tell them that you care about them. When they are able to identify that they're miserable or in a space where they don't want to talk about the ideology, then you need to connect their susceptibility, their vulnerabilities in a kind and compassionate way so that you can talk about that's probably why you believe in the ideology. So it's making the connection in a strategic way that actually works. It's being able to see the individual. Now, there are when there is the, the, the case of absolute mental illness, there's not a lot you can do. And that's definitely like, higher ratios of people that are in radical or extremist movements that go on to become terrorists now increasingly, not necessarily with the jihadists, but that is a fundamental distinction between the two. Currently, in an age of targeted violence where people are just selecting an array of ideologies, adopting them, and just going out and killing, this is a mental health condition. But it's created by a culture that is conducive to such, right? And so what we believe is that the art of communicating, not like when people say compassionate communication, I think they misunderstand what that means. Compassionate communication just means creating a safe space where people can have a conversation and express themselves. And that's what we do, right? The people that reach out to us, they reach out to us because they know we're different than the other people in my field, that we don't have political biases. And they see the success stories of people that have come and, 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 and departed. So we model by letting what we do speak for itself. But when you sit down and you're a white supremacist and you reach out or when we reach out to you and you agree to talk with us and we don't challenge your views, we just want to know you as a person. That's exactly what the extremists do to these individuals. Right. They don't talk about the ideology first. They they look at like, hey, come eat with us at the halal restaurant. 
right? And get to know what we do. And all you hear them talk about is prayer and giving charity. Or when you're in the, uh, I don't know what it would look like under the KKK, well, we, hypothetically, you're going to church, you know, and you're talking about Jesus and you're eating barbecue, right? And then slowly it's the community and the community is held together by the sticky ideology. And so that's where the ideas come from. You have to create an alternative. You have to create alternative meaning, alternative significance and alternative community for these individuals. And that's what's hard. And the only way that they'll accept it is if at first, when you first get to know them, if you take your time and you have to be sincere in the sense that like, I still see the humanity in you because a lot of acting out is just, I want you to focus on me. It's like the, the, you know, the bad kid that's getting beat at home at school, right? He's acting out because he's getting beat. He doesn't know how to cope. He doesn't know how to deal with it. His behavior is a consequence of underlying issues, right? But if you judge based just on the behavior, you might make it worse by saying that's just a bad kid. Whereas if you grab him by the hand and you walk him off and say something bothering you and you keep and you're persistent, then eventually you can establish the rapport that can give them the tool set, make the connections necessary to start to overcome some of those underlying difficulties. Because it's never the ideology. The ideology is something you grab outside of yourself for something else that you're getting from the movement. So what about cases where there doesn't seem to be a clear movement? such as for, for many school shooters, mm-hmm. you know, so sometimes, you know, we talk about sort of lone wolves, people who may or may not be tapped into certain online communities, but sometimes just truly seem like lone wolves. Is, are, are these kinds of people that your organization wants to be involved with? And if so, do you approach them differently than you approach classic extremist groups? So school shooters are quite distinct in the literature, the empirical data that differentiates between people that radicalize to ideologically driven violence and vis-a-vis those that become school shooters. There's a lot of differentiations and differences between the two, Um, mostly their lack of connectivity. So school shooters tend to have very few friends, very few people to talk to, whereas if they adopted a radical ideology, they would have community and many of them probably wouldn't go on to become right, school shooters, but they might go on to become violent extremists. So there's this big question about predisposition to violence and whether people that are predisposed to violence adopt movements so that they can kill or whether movements radicalize people to kill, right? We still don't know much about that, but it's a confluence of factors that certainly contribute to that. Our organization does work in that realm in some capacity, right? So we've worked with the involuntary celibate community and a lot of the background data on involuntary celibates that we've gathered from establishing rapport with them has shown that like, it's not the ideology. Those individuals that are most supportive of violence, we pulled over 300 of them. We're working on some papers uh, associated with that. But what basically comes out is that those that have a commitment to the black pill ideology that involuntary celibates believe in are the less likely to commit violence. But those that are there right, that do not have a commitment and an understanding of the ideology are actually most supportive of violence, right? So this is like something that would baffle, you know, but the problem is, is that that's what we have. We have a situation where it's isolation, loneliness, look for a sense of belonging, right? And if you get accepted by the community, you'll adopt the ideology. If you're not accepted by the community, you'll peripherally look at the ideology, but you're still isolated inside of an extremist online milieu. With these, with these individuals, if you compartmentalize the data and you take them and you compare them with the data on school shooters, it looks a lot the same. It looks very similar, right? And so 
really the question then becomes one about, are we creating conditions under which increasing numbers of people in our society are isolated and don't have social connectivity? And can we change that? Or do we have to change by removing these, like if you adopt the black pill ideology as you're an incel, could it be a buffer against becoming a violent extremist, even though it's considered misogynist and most people want it to be removed from the internet, which would be counterintuitive. But that's what the data suggests. School shooters is the same way. I mean, technically, when we look at their stories, they start to flirt. And there's many people that have gone on to become incel killers that weren't actually incel killers because even before they were incel killers, they were looking at mass shooters from the time they were 14 or 15 in high school. And they were never actually engaged in the community. They were identified as incel killers because they said, you know, on a Facebook post before they carried out their attack, you know, I'm an incel or whatever, but there's no track history. There's no record of that. Or they might have been affiliated with an online forum for a period of time, but there's no activity on that forum. So that's the danger that we run into when we try to prohibit radical ideas. I'm not familiar with the black pill ideology. What, a, what are you supposed to believe? So black pill ideology is something that essentially is this belief that um, involuntary celibacy, which is a, you are familiar with the involuntary celibates. Sure, yeah, and yeah. I, I was using it as, as, as one example from amongst the hundreds of milus that one can belong to today that are considered, you know, radicalized and dangerous. An involuntary celibate believes that because of the uh, culture that we're living in based on what they call lookism, you know, that basically because they are not considered attractive by standards, and they will never have sex with a woman, right? That this is a condition that they're exposed to. And the black pill is basically a fatalist that you can't change this. This will, this will never change. You're always going to be isolated. No woman, nobody is ever going to want you per se, right? And then what it's framed as, even though it's not, it's framed by journalists and academics as something that justifies just going out and killing all women. That's not what it calls for. But it's very easy for our media to do these things, to perpetuate these narratives, just like it's very easy for us to say the Canadians labeled the Proud Boys a terrorist organization. I'd like to know one attack the Proud Boys ever engaged in that was an actual terrorist event. I don't know of any. Right. But at the same time, because of all of the propaganda, all of this need to identify these enemies. Right. This is what we have in the conditions we live in today. We have to have enemies. We have to have somebody that we can combat. We have to have somebody that we can shut down. We have to have somebody that we can censor. Right. In fact, those very things that we're trying to ban and prohibit might make it more likely that an individual kills. So the black pill ideology is really just a grievance that's based on the red pill of the right, alt right. Right. The idea of the Matrix movie, take the blue pill, you wake up like nothing ever happened, take the red pill and I'll show you how far the rabbit hole goes. The black pill is a play on that that is affiliated with the involuntary celibate community. So I, I, the confusion must be that because many, but, but by no means all school shooters may be incels or may, whether they identify as such or not, may be the kind of guy that could be described or could fit in with the incel community, that therefore the reverse must also be true, that incels must have some connection to this kind of random acts of violence, which actually it's, it's, it's not logical. It's a, you know, it's a, like a square and a rectangle kind of a situation. Exactly. Exactly. So and, that, and, and, and that's what's beautiful about the First Amendment. And one of the reasons that I have come to really uphold the principle of free speech as understood in the United States vis-a-vis -vis the 
the alternative constitutional democratic processes that basically put technocrats in charge of making decisions like that in countries like Canada and 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 in Western Europe. Um, because the moment that you try to ban radical speech, your intentions might be good, right? Or what you call hate speech, which how do you define hate speech? How do you define a hateful movement, right? Um, the moment that you try to ban it, you might actually indirectly make problems worse. And that's why in a world of science that can appreciate complexity, but in a world where people that are tasked with overcoming these hurdles and addressing these concerns are not necessarily like if you're Facebook, you're not worried primarily about making the world a better place. You're worried primarily about what your share prices, right? And your profit margins. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's really, we're living in this era uh, where we're increasingly saying you're prohibited from the public square. And we think that we are righteously doing that in a way to make the world a better place. But in fact, we're slowly eroding the social fabric of our democracy. And that's really why it's so important to figure out how to combat hate and violent extremism in an appropriate manner. Because I think it's clear for all to see that lone wolf attacks, school shootings, mass shootings are certainly not going down, right? Even though we might be trying to repeal and prohibit the gateways into them, right? And uh, misunderstanding that actually some of those gateways may actually be buffers. And that we can kind of shape the narrative and provide alternative gateways that represent what we call a parallel network, so to say. All right. So um, before I let you go, where can listeners go to support your organization? So we have a main website, pnetworks.org, where we run our international and domestic operations, lightuponlight.online, which is where we house our domestic material and at Twitter on at Jesse underscore Morton. Awesome. Thank you so much for this, Jesse. This has been an excellent conversation and I hope to have you back again at some point. Very good. Hopefully we'll talk soon. All right. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.